Hello, welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. I'm Samantha Snyder, and today I sit down with Library Research Fellow George Goodwin to discuss his latest findings on Benjamin Franklin, espionage, and the propaganda dealings in Europe on the American Revolution. As a reminder, there is still time to register for the upcoming Ford Evening Book Talk with Robert P. Watson, who is talking about his new book, The Ghost Ship of Brooklyn, An Untold Story of the American Revolution. Please remember to rate and subscribe. And now, join me with in my interview with George Goodwin. All right, so George, I'm really happy to have you in the studio today. Um, it's lovely to see you. <laughs> well, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Uh, I mean, this is the most fantastic place. Uh, it has uh, brilliant resources. I mean, imagine coming to somewhere where you have uh, the two key documents of Washington's life, as far as I'm concerned. You have the um, the serve the complete surveyor, the uh, the survey book, um, which um, the Washington Library has recently. Um, uh, been able to acquire. Uh, and this was owned by a very influential figure, uh, Colonel Fairfax, who started uh, George Washington off on his first career, which was a surveyor. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a book that um, doesn't have Washington's name in it, has Colonel Fairfax's name. It was a book that he, he borrowed. And um, he always kept. He wasn't asked to give it back. I was going to say, never gave it back. No. Yeah. And then, of course, at the other end, it's got the um, uh, the annotated version of um, the Constitution, which mm-hmm. uh, the library bought. Um, uh, 2012. 2012, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. going to say. I mean, yeah. it was sort of almost ushering in. <laughs> yeah, at the start of the new library. The start of the new library. And what's fascinating about it is the is the the notes, the little pencil marks saying president, showing what were the powers of the president. And, uh, you know, it's it's very, very interesting to read. So needless to say, you're very happy to be here. (laughs) I am absolutely delighted. I mean, it's sort of a a place of, of, it's a treasure trove, put it that way. Yes. So while you're here, what what is it that you're focusing on? Well, I'm focusing on... um, Propaganda, <laughs> propaganda, and espionage. This is a this is a follow up to um, my book uh, Benjamin Franklin in London, mm-hmm. uh, and um, having having completed that one, I thought right. Uh, I think more Benjamin Franklin is an extremely good idea. So <laughs> never can have enough. <laughs> can, can never get enough of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, so I thought to myself, uh, right, now um, I, I end the book with him um, fleeing from London in March 1775. I mean, people don't realise how late mm-hmm. he, he stayed in London. I mean, he, he lived in London for uh, a very long time before that. Um, and uh, so I thought, well, let's take the, the story on and show the importance of Franklin um, when he arrived here, but also when he was in France, because my argument is that he was second only to George Washington mm-hmm. for the uh, the American patriots winning the um, the war for independence, because um, he managed to uh, to first get the French into the war, and mm-hmm. secondly 
to keep them there. So he was going to be the sort of, um, not the central part uh, of the next, well, actually, sorry, he was going to be the central part of the next book, but he was not going to be quite so all-pervasive. It is um, a, a series of biographies rather than... Than just Benjamin than, than Franklin. just yeah. Benjamin yeah. Franklin. Um, so I was going to take in uh, Americans in London and Paris during the Revolution. Mm. But I've slightly changed it. I'm going to do what so many other people did at the time and afterwards... I'm going to ditch the loyalists. <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm afraid the loyalists are going to are going to get ditched. And uh, the reason I'm here is because in my f- um, sort of move away, uh, I'm taking in um, concentrating more on the propaganda mm. side and the espionage side. And uh, that has a major focus on George Washington, mm-hmm. because George Washington was um, represented in the in the British press as the very model of what a respectable gentleman mm. and military leader should be, uh, as opposed to uh, some of the British um, generals who the. Um, the, the weak element, the anti-government uh, element um, who dominated certain sections of the press uh, certainly did not approve of. And, and we have to remember that when, when the war started, it was very much a civil war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result of that, the, uh, the American colonists were um, treated again by... Um, the anti-government faction as very much um, British uh, subjects un- under under the king, and propaganda was incredibly important. Uh, the way that um, each side was going to be to, to be recognised at the start of the war, and most important of all, was how it all kicked off at Lexington and Concord, and the ability of Sam Adams to ensure that it was his view of what happened at Lexington and Concord that got into the British press rather than general gauges. And what fascinates me is that the report of uh, Lexington and Concord first appeared in the Essex Gazette of Salem. Hmm. And the owner of the Essex Gazette also uh, owned an extremely fast ship. So they were able to transport it that quickly. They ah. arrived. His report arrived two weeks before huh. Gage's report. <gasps> And there was another factor that Benjamin Franklin, before uh, he left, I mean, over, over a, a period of, of, of many years, and also Arthur Lee had been very, very influential um, in getting articles into the British press through their, their more liberal-thinking mm-hmm. chums. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Arthur Lee also was very much in with uh, John Wilkes, 
who in the uh, 1760s had been this completely sort of outrageous figure, uh, uh, Wilkes and, and, and Liberty, it was sort of Wilkes and, and self-seeking, <laughs> but he effectively got the mob on his side, ah. and he also got sort of key electors for um, the parliamentary seat of Middlesex on, on side, and uh, had... Um, had got himself into Parliament and had been thrown out of Parliament so many times. But in the end, he became a major respected figure in the City of London. And at the time of Lexington and Concord, he was Mayor of London. Ah! And Arthur Lee, his American friend, was Sheriff of <laughs> London. So when the report arrived... Um, it came through to Arthur Lee, and Arthur Lee put in, in the press that uh, this is the authentic report, and you just need to consult the, the Lord Mayor, um, John Wilkes, mm -hmm. for proper authentication huh. of that fact. Everybody believed and it. And everyone did it, yep. Even Lord George Germain, who <laughs> was l later going to direct the British war effort, he believed it. <laughs> he said, you know, this is a true report of the action. It's and power of propaganda. Power of, so at the beginning, they basically uh, dominated the playing field. And now where, where Washington comes in is that Washington was promoted, as I said, as this upright mm -hmm. figure mm -hmm. so effectively that by uh, 1777, 78, the British Secret Service thought, well, we've got to do something about this. <laughs> So they did something rather clever, and the the documents are actually here, or you can have access to the to the, the documents there. They're quite readily available, and they were called. They were published in a later published in a volume called "The Spurious Letters of George oh, Washington." Yes, I know were, about that. <laughs> they were exactly. They were so effective that uh, people believed that these had to be genuine letters because um, they really captured the, the sort of the essence of Washington. Basically, mm -hmm. it had to be an inside job. It had to be somebody who so knew who Washington knew incredibly well, who then passed these over to the British. And Washington himself was... Um, one could say, actually, he was so upset and obsessed with these that even to the last day when he was president, he was trying to use presidential powers all those years wow. later to try and find out who it was. Wow. Okay. Huh. Huh. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Um, I know another thing we, were, we talked about a little earlier in the day today um, was how the Declaration of Independence was first shown in the British in the London newspapers. Well, uh, yes, this um, this was something that I researched uh, during my time as a um, as a fellow from month down at um, at the Jefferson Foundation at Monticello because obviously there you are, you're a guest of Mr. <laughs> Jefferson, so you obviously study the Declaration of Independence. And uh, with the help of uh, a very good book by uh, David Armitage, um, I, I looked into this and, uh, and other documentation, such as doing a survey of all the British newspapers, which you, of course, can do online now. All you need to do <laughs> is put in Declaration of Independence, uh, 
And I was particularly keen to look at newspapers where, which were owned not by the, the people I've been talking about, the sort of the more sort of liberal Whig types, or owned uh, or were the official sort of propaganda tools of, the, of Lord North's government, but ones which were run uh, and owned by independent members of parliament. And I found the Stamford Mercury uh, as being a particularly good example mm. amongst many, which was uh, owned by, uh, by the local lord, uh, who basically nominated the members of parliament. He was totally independent, mm -hmm. and he told the editor of the, of the newspaper pretty much what to write. And in this, um, the Declaration of Independence was printed. Uh, without any comment, mm -hmm. without any comment, it was printed on the the back page. But that that's not surprising because in those days, of course, all the new all the advertisements were on the front page of the paper, and the back page was kind of like the main page. Yeah. But it was the placement within that page which was rather interesting. It was in among the theatre reviews, <laughs> so it was it was actually treated as a tactical. Uh, element by the um, by the patriots, almost along the lines of, well, of course they would declare <laughs> independence, wouldn't they? But actually, they can't really declare independence because, according to the philosophy of, of the time, all the sort of crowned heads of Europe had the approach that you could only declare independence if you were already. <laughs> independent it had to be an actuality you you couldn't say oh look oh well we're independent now <laughs> it actually had to be a thing and that was the attitude of course not only of the british mm -hmm. but of the french the spanish and the dutch mm -hmm. so i'm afraid i actually had to turn around and uh, <laughs> when i gave my presentation there and i said well this is this may seem a bit rude to mr jefferson yep. to say that it really had absolutely no impact in europe whatsoever <laughs> but i mean the key thing is it had the massive impact in uh, in america yes, which was which course. was where it was designed and, and actually because when it came out uh, people didn't realize it was effectively um, mr jefferson's declaration oh. because he didn't he didn't own up to own up is the wrong word. He didn't um, declare his authorship until mm -hmm. many, many years later. And I think even then it was when uh, it was put to him. It, it wasn't something that he volunteered. Yeah. He, was, he was really quite sort of modest about it. But that's that's interesting because, is, correct me if I'm wrong, that's on his tombstone, I believe, as author of the Declaration. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that but, interesting? Yes, of course. But... Um, who knows who decided to put that on there to put it on there mm -hmm. and that i don't mm -hmm. know it may have been mr jefferson himself <laughs> or it may have been um, done um, yeah, a long time yeah, afterwards yeah so we'll actually we'll have to get on to monticello and ask them. yes and we I'm should sure, i'm sure they'll, they'll tell us that we should we should um i guess so let's see um so how how important was Propaganda to the revolution. Like, oh well, it was it was absolutely essential because um, having having got this uh, this domination of the press or, or rather of the narrative at mm -hmm. the beginning of the revolution, uh, it was in both on the interests of both sides to try and. Uh, and, and, and continue uh, a domination of the press. Now, 
I can see uh, there's a kind of like a, a big collective question mark over um, over the heads of the uh, people listening to this at the moment because <laughs> they're going to say, Lord North's government. I mean, surely governments in, in those days, they would have had a complete lockdown on what was written in the press. Not true. Hmm. There wasn't actually um, much in the way of censorship at all. Huh. I mean, Lord North spent quite a long time about complaining uh, what, about what was being written uh, about him. In fact, there was only one case um, where... Um, newspaper editors were prosecuted mm -hmm. and a great number were prosecuted and actually it was for putting in an advertisement uh, after Lexington and Concord or rather uh, they ran this advertisement uh, after Lexington and Concord um, basically reinforcing the Adams hmm. view of what had happened, that there had been British atrocities and that they were raising, um, this advertisement was raising money for, for the children that had been orphaned because of the, the British atrocities. And at, it, they, uh, at the end of it, they said, you know, money raised should be sent to Mr. Benjamin Franklin. Ah. And... Ah. Um, that was that was the one time when uh, when the government thought right okay uh, this is this is gone too far but that mm -hmm. was at, that was at the, be the beginning of the war, um, of course Franklin when he came over here uh, he became the effective head of the committee of secret correspondence ah and that's uh, another very interesting line of inquiry because uh, through that. He set up a spy network mm -hmm. uh, in, mm -hmm. in London and um, it was connecting Silas Dean uh, with Edward Bancroft via a publisher called Ralph Griffiths. And Ralph Griffiths, uh, as well as publishing a very important uh, magazine, um, which was like a sort of semi sort of review magazine called I think it's the Monthly Review. Hmm. Um, I'll have to have to go away and check that <laughs> immediately. Okay, that's quite an important point. Um, basically, um, he'd made a vast fortune by publishing uh, Fanny Hill. Oh, which was yes. the the naughty book of the time, uh, a little bit like uh, the uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, but a million times <laughs> better written. So I'm told. Of course, I don't read that I've kind read of thing myself. And, I'm yes. sure. <laughs> and uh, but it makes Fifty Shades of Grey sort of read like Tolstoy. Uh, sorry, it's the other way round. <laughs> I mean, Fanny Hill um, is reads like Tolstoy yes. in comparison. Yes. Um, anyway, so. Um, Griffiths was very, very important for linking them up. But we're not quite sure how, and this is, again, another thing that I am going to, to chase up. Mm -hmm. We're not quite sure how the British Secret Service got on to Bancroft mm -hmm. and they turned him. And he became... He was very, he was very close to, um, to Benjamin Franklin, so close, in fact, that he became... Uh, Franklin's personal secretary when Franklin was the American minister in Paris. Oh. And he was a double agent. <laughs> now, the thing is, uh, did Franklin actually know 
that he was a double agent. Uh, Bernard Balin, and, and for goodness sake, who am I to argue with a double Pulitzer Prize winner? Uh, Bernard Balin uh, believes that Franklin did know and that um, he was actually keen for the French to find out that stuff was being given to the British mm-hmm. um, because, I mean, this was after, obviously after the French joined the war, uh, because he, Balian's argument was that, and this is quite a convoluted one, let's face it, uh, <laughs> was that if the French knew that uh, their Franklin was feeding information via Bancroft through to the British, through this kind of back channel, then he might actually suddenly make peace with the, the British and leave the French in the lurch. Ah. I somehow don't quite I was say, believe that's that. pretty convoluted. I, I, yeah. I think so. Uh, I, I do hope Professor Balin doesn't <laughs> listen to this. But uh, sorry, I, Professor Balin. Sorry, Professor Balin. But but uh, you know one of the one of the greatest uh, historians of our age. <laughs> but um, I personally believe that um, that Franklin didn't know. Mm. And in terms of um, Bancroft being exposed as this British double agent, it wasn't actually discovered um, until a research historian uncovered this oh. in the 1860s. Oh, okay. So, But actually, there was one, I find it a very amusing anecdote, that, um, that uh, the, um, the British were pretty, pretty on the ball mm-hmm. uh, of using um, this information. But on one occasion, they were too on the ball. They complained about a letter that had gone from the American delegation uh, to the French government before the French government had actually received it. <laughs> so that was a bit of a giveaway. So someone is going to say... <laughs> How could they possibly know? know that? Yeah. So, um, so all this is is part of my uh, my ongoing study for mm-hmm. my for our next one. But we should we should come back to to, to General Washington because, um, of course, he was pretty adept at at using mm-hmm. propaganda, mm-hmm. and so were his. Um, his family of junior officers. And I've just been reading Lender and Stone's book on uh, called um, uh, F- Fatal Sunday yeah. about the, the Battle of Monmouth and how extraordinarily effective they were after that battle of basically pinning, hmm. uh, pinning the blame uh, for the uh, for the chaos at the beginning on Charles Lee mm-hmm. and effectively fixing him, and also uh, portraying Washington as the man who saved the day, yep. and this is very much the the story that has has come down to us. And I'm looking forward to to looking at that rather more closely mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. seeing again how the likes of Alexander Hamilton had beforehand built up these press contacts yep. so that they knew that they would be on side. And, I mean, I see, you know, th- that battle or the result of that battle as absolutely crucial in terms of 
building Washington's self-confidence and the confidence of the um, of the American patriots in Washington, and from there it was all on a path towards victory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, what so what what type of Propaganda, I suppose, did did they use to to build up Washington like that? Well, I mean, the press was, you know, newspapers yeah. were incredibly, incredibly important. I mean, on both sides of the Atlantic, and the news would go to and fro mm-hmm. uh, that um, that you would you would have uh, press reports from here uh, would be report as I said about the um, the Lexington oh, yeah, Concord yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, would would then find their way into the the British press and to an extent vice versa, and in terms again of of talking about the American patriots uh, dominating the um, the press discussion, um, Franklin was seen to be the kind of honest broker even right through. Uh, 1776, way beyond the Declaration mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. of Independence. And uh, so reports would say, well, you know, that, that, that Dr. Franklin is the person who, who is in a position to, to negotiate the peace that we would all like to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but suddenly, uh, in January 1777, when it was discovered that he had gone to France. Oh, <laughs> he is now collaborating with, with Britain's greatest enemy. Uh-huh. And it changed just like yep. a flip of the coin from being um, potential uh, peacemaker, though actually it was a complete misunderstanding because by that stage, Franklin was one of the most ardent patriots of them all, mm-hmm. but that hadn't been picked up upon by mm-hmm. certain sections of the press. Uh, he'd gone from being this peacemaker basically being to being you know the greatest enemy that the country had mm-hmm. and George III picked up on this I mean George III believed that Benjamin Franklin had deliberately designed the lightning conductors on oh public gosh. buildings to be to, you know to actually attract um, lightning strikes oh in order to uh, in order to destroy them and, and the reason, one of the reasons for this, uh, was that there was a lightning strike on the um, the Royal um, Armory at mm. uh, at Perfleet, and um, this this was after the uh, the war had begun, and, and Franklin had been involved in in discussions th- with other members of the the Royal Society um, about uh, what kind of um, lightning conductor should they have now he was in dispute with a former friend uh, Benjamin Wilson who believed that in fact indeed um, Franklin's lightning conductors were far (laughs) too effective and that instead of having these points on the end you should have sort of uh, bulbs because which would be less effective yeah Yeah. Uh, I mean they would still be good at at uh, drawing some uh, lightning and of course going going down the, um, the the cables and earthing into into the ground, mm-hmm. but you know it wouldn't be too powerful. Uh, but actually, I mean, the the, uh, the Royal Ordnance Place at Perfleet was um, was struck, but it was because there was actually a a, a gap 
mm-hmm. in the cable. Mm-hmm. Oh, George III didn't believe this at all. <laughs> he supported he supported Benjamin Wilson and set up these sort of this, these experiments to try and prove that the barbs were what were needed. Mm-hmm. And he had all the um, all the lightning conductors on the on um, royal buildings and royal palaces changed. Huh. And uh, Benjamin Franklin, when told about this, he said, well, that being, being the king's view, uh, it would be my, my absolute wish that there were no lightning conductors on any of his buildings <laughs> at all. Don't you just wish you could have been in the room when some of these and conversations happen? Yes, <laughs> yes, I, I, I certainly do. Yeah. Well, George, it was wonderful having you in here with me today, and uh, I look forward to hearing more about your research. Thank you very much indeed, Sam. It's been an absolute delight. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.